Galatians chapter 5. We're continuing in our series, How to Be a Good Christian and Other Religious Nonsense. This is the 10th installment in the series. We're going to be looking at Galatians 5, verses 1 through 12. The title of this message is No Guilt in Life, No Fear in Death. That is some good stuff right there. No guilt in life, no fear in death. We're just going to read verse 1 together of Galatians 5 to start. Paul writes and says, So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Lord, we thank you for that verse right there, that Christ has truly set us free. Free from having to perform, free from the penalty of our failures, free from the need to do better, be better, try harder. Thank you for the cross that has set us free to be forgiven and to enjoy the love of God. And Lord, we're just asking that we would be those people that would walk in freedom, that we would never again get tied up to slavery to the law, to having to perform, to feeling that we need to please you or ingratiate you or any of those things, Lord. We just ask that we would be a people who walk in freedom and therefore enjoy you immensely, Jesus. Thank you that because you died in our place, there's no guilt on us anymore. There's no judgment for us anymore. There's no guilt in this life. There's no fear in death. We ask that you'd minister this to our hearts today in a profound, transformative, beautiful, life-changing, world-changing way. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I have done some things in my life And I've done some things recently that have created for me a tremendous sense of guilt. I've, I've actually done horrific things recently that have created for me a burden, a weight a crushing sort of guilt. I wonder if you have. I wonder if you ever feel that way. You know, Paul, who wrote this verse, was a murderer. Acts 9.1. I mean, he he was actually a murderer of Christians before he became a Christian. I mean, he actually violently put his hands and weapons on believers in Jesus in a way that ended their lives. He did everything he could to malign the church, to impede the progress of the gospel. And he actually, with his hands, imprisoned, caused pain for and even ended the life of people that love Jesus. And these sort of things, the kind of things I've done, sort of things Paul has done, perhaps some of the things that you've done, 
they create in us a sense of guilt. It feels like an overwhelming weight. It's a burden. It's a burden. You wake up in the morning, it's there, it's, it's heavy. Something we daily bear. There might be moments, days, weeks, even seasons where we seem free from it, but sooner or later we wake up and there it is. The shame, the horror, the weight of that thing. And we are once again confronted with the truth of what we can never fix, never undo, never redo. And it feels bad. Feels bad in our conscience. Feels bad because there's a fear of the rejection of God and that we'll someday stand before God and be judged for those things. And so what do I do with these feelings of mine? What most of us try to do is atone for the bad things that we have done. We try to make amends for the bad things that we have done in one way or another. I did this, it's bad, it was wrong, I feel the weight of guilt. If I do this, it will perhaps undo that. It will relieve some of the burden, <clears throat> some of the weight that I feel. We, we try to atone for them. And that, that concept of atonement is universal. Almost everybody in the world is trying to atone for something. There's people here who are bad husbands. They're, they're, they're behaving in a certain way now that they're trying to atone for that. There's people here who are bad fathers, bad moms. And so, and so they're, they're acting in a, a way now where they're trying to make up for that, to deal with that guilt, that if I could just do good enough now, it'll relieve the burden and the weight of what I did that was so bad then. There's people here, including me, whose past is so filled with wrong. We're aggressively trying to do right in an effort to atone for, make amends for that thing. I was recently in Portland just last week. I just got home Friday afternoon. I was there for a conference. I was with some of the reality church planters. And it was a long conference. It was a tiring conference. They're always tiring. And the last night that we were in town, we were, we were going out to dinner. As we were walking. We said, you know, we don't want to go out to dinner. We just want to sit in our hotel room and talk and listen to music and eat pizza. So we ordered pizza, and um, I was in charge of ordering the pizza, and if you know me, I do everything too much, so I ordered a lot of pizza. And I don't normally eat pizza because I'm trying not to be as big as I usually am, so I'm trying to eat less things like pizza now in my life. And I ate so much freaking pizza that night. I mean, the amount of pizza I ate is obscene. You know how pizza goes down so easy? It's so thin. You know what I mean? I mean, I got thin crust. It was so thin. It's like almost nothing. It just goes down so easy. Somehow, though, it's so thin when it gets in you. It's so heavy. And I don't know. I, I don't know. Nine, ten pieces or something. And I, the next day, we were... We, Caught a flight home and I was with Pastor Al on staff of this church, reality church planter, yet to go out. And we were driving home. We had an early morning flight, so we hadn't really eaten anything since the pizza extravaganza the night before. I was still feeling so heavy. 
And Al, who has a better metabolism than me, as we're driving home from LAX, was like, dude, I am so hungry. Let's get something to eat. I'm like, oh. And he's like, Chipotle. I'm like, no, not Chipotle. Something, I don't know. And he's like, In-N-Out sounds so good. In-N-Out would be perfect right now. And I'm just looking at him like, wow, dude, I am so weighed down with the pizza. I was like, bro, listen, we ate so much pizza last night. We cannot do Chipotle. We cannot do In-N-Out. We're going to stop at this Trader Joe's up here, and we're going to get some carrot juice and some raw cashews. (laughs) And that's it. That's all we're going to eat. We're not going to eat anything else till dinner tonight. That's it. That's exactly what we did. And what was going on in my mind was there was this deep sense because of the weight of the pizza in me that I needed to atone for it. I had done bad in eating nine or ten pieces of pizza, and now I had to do good and drink carrot juice and eat raw cashews. It's a silly illustration of a deep spiritual and moral struggle. We've done bad. We feel the weight of it. We are intent on doing good to get out from underneath the weight, to make up for the things we did that have left us with the burden of guilt. And we're doing this either for the sake of conscience or for the sake of God, but usually both. The weight is upon our conscience and the fear is of God. And there's this deep sense that we need to placate, win over, make peace with, appease, please, ingratiate, or gain favor with God. Because we fell out of that. The the, the weight of the guilt tells us that we've fallen out of favor with God. And what Paul is saying in the book of Galatians is that what the religious person does with this weight and this burden of guilt is he attempts to make up for the bad by being very good by obeying the law in the vernacular of the Bible. Many of us do this. We we feel bad, and so we assume that if we can be very good, we will, number one, clear our consciences, and so feel better, and number two, make things right with God, and so feel better. And so wanting to do good, to feel better, to get out from underneath the weight, we go to the law, the rules, the commandments, the guidelines, the right things. I've done wrong. I feel the weight. I want to do right. So we go to the law and we intend to do that. What we forget is that the law only and always shows us to be bad. The law, the rules only and always show us to be bad. That is their purpose. We studied this when we were in Galatians chapter 3, where verse 19 says, why was the law given? It was given to show people their sins. Nobody is shown good by obeying the law. We are only shown to be bad. So then, in trying to show ourselves good, to either placate God or satisfy our consciences, we end up actually feeling more burdened. In our attempts to do good, if we're serious about it, the law shows us that we're even worse than we thought. And the the, the weight of the guilt, the burden of it, has only increased. The problem of conscience and standing before God worsens. Look what Paul says about this in verse 2. 
Listen, I, Paul, tell you this. If you are counting on circumcision, okay, and we, we've talked a lot about circumcision, we won't go back and cover it, but it, it was the sign of someone who was intending to obey the laws of God, okay, and that was the first step in doing it, and false teachers here in the church were saying that it had some merit before God, okay? We talked about it before. Listen, I, Paul, tell you this. If you're counting on circumcision, obeying the law, to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. I'll say it again. If you're trying to find favor with God by being circumcised, right, obeying the law, you must obey every regulation in the whole law of Moses. For if you're trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you have been cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from God's grace. Paul says here that 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 thing the, the religious people try to do, where in light of the fact that we've been very bad, we try to make up for that by being very good, by obeying the rules. That thing, and trying to make ourselves right with God, find favor with God, or satisfy our consciences by doing good, causes Christ to be no benefit to us, it says in verse 1. If this is your approach to dealing with the burden of guilt, then Christ is of no benefit to you. Because, as he says in verse 3, if you want to obey the rules, you need to obey every single one of them. Because, as the Apostle James would say, to fail in one of them is to fail in all of them. To assume guilt in one part is to take on the weight of guilt of the whole of the law. And, as it says in verse 4, if this is your way of dealing with guilt, you have been cut off from Christ. And An interesting phrase here. You have fallen from God's grace. See, here's here's what Paul is saying to me, the guilt-ridden man. Either Christ does everything for you or nothing. Either he assumed the whole of the burden at the cross, therefore he is of total benefit to you, or he is of no benefit at all. You see, Christ refuses to be a mere collaborator in our salvation. We talked about this in our last lesson. The misconception that God helps those who help themselves. And so we think, okay, Jesus, you died upon the cross. That's great. Now I've been forgiven. I've got this blank slate. Now I need to fill it up with good deeds. Now I need to do my part. You've certainly done your part, Christ, but now I'll do mine and we'll collaborate to deal with the weight of guilt on my conscience and my poor standing before God. And Paul says that there is no collaboration between you and God for salvation. Either Christ is of full benefit to you or he's of no benefit whatsoever. So we have to understand that our attempts to add to what Christ has done for us by being good Christians. We've all got this concept of what good Christians do. Our attempt to add to what Christ has done for us, somehow improve our standing before God, feel better about ourselves by being good Christians, obeying the rules, actually nullifies what Christ did for us. The the religious person thinks it to be adding to improving upon, improving conscience, improving what Christ has done for us, our standing before God. But in actuality, Paul says, it nullifies it. There's a story of a guy who had a baseball, and this baseball was signed by Babe Ruth. 
And some years down the road, after having it signed, someone brought to his attention that, listen, dude, that thing is signed by Babe Ruth. That, that's going to be worth some money. And, and so he went to sell it. But as he was examining its condition before he sold it, he saw that Babe Ruth's signature was pretty well worn by this time, and it was real light. You could barely see it. So he figured, gosh, it's got to do better than that. I'm going to sell this thing. And so he took out a felt pen and very carefully he traced over every single letter. And by overlaying his own efforts on what Babe Ruth had done, he completely removed the value of the baseball. When the Christian attempts to satisfy conscience or placate God, to overlay performance on what Christ has done, we completely nullify the value of the cross. It says there that doing that is to fall from grace. Isn't that interesting? Because that's not how we use that phrase, to fall from grace, popularly. We, we use it when someone has done something really bad. That's how we use it. He had an affair. He fell from grace. Uh, she, she got busted in bezeling. She fell from grace. Right? We usually say someone fell from grace when they did something really bad. But here, Paul uses the term to refer to actually trying to do something good in order to undo something bad. You don't fall from grace when you've been bad. You fall from grace when you're trying to do something good to atone for whatever it was that you did that was very bad that's now weighing you down with guilt. When you do that for the sake of conscience and for the sake of God, you have fallen from grace. In other words, you've returned to slavery. The grace of God has set us free. But when you're doing that, you return to slavery. Verse 1, again, so Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Now, when Paul says here that we've been set free by Christ, he's referring explicitly to slavery to the law. The need to perform according to the rules, to deal with the conscience, and to have a right standing before God. That's what he's talking about. Christ has set us free from other things, like the power of sin, thank you, Jesus, like the power of death, hallelujah, and like the power of the devil. But that's not what Paul's talking about right here. He's speaking strictly about the fact that Christ has set us free from the need to perform well, do better, be good, to relieve the weight of guilt on the conscience and a poor standing before God. The reason that the law is slavery that we need to be set free from is what the law does is produce guilt. Therefore, it is a yoke that is unbearable. You understand what a yoke is? It's that thing that they would put on a beast of burden. And so that that, that beast was now strapped in, had this heavy weight upon him, and would plow the fields. It was just this, this binding yoke that had them trapped and weighed down. It's called a yoke of slavery in the New American Standard. And the yoke of the law is unbearable because it can't be kept. You've never seriously tried to be good according to scriptural standards if you actually think you can be good. Anyone who's really given themselves to a serious endeavor 
of obeying the rules realizes that they can't be kept. And so the law creates for us infinite debt. And the better we try to be, the more the feelings of guilt and my conscience only worsen. And we see ourselves as being in more and more trouble with God. And a lot of Christians have fallen prey to this approach. And it's tragic. Paul addresses it in verse 7 that many have fallen prey to this. He says, we're going to skip 5 and 6 for now. Go to verse 7. He says, you were running the race so well. Your Christian life was going so well. Who's held you back from following the truth? The truth of the gospel. It certainly isn't God. For he's the one who called you to freedom. This false teaching is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough. This idea that we need to perform to satisfy conscience and to placate God perverts all of the Christian life. Verse 10, I'm trusting the Lord to keep you from believing false teachings. God will judge that person, whoever he is, who has been confusing you. Notice that he says, who's led you straight certainly isn't God, for he's the one who called you to freedom. In other words, he's saying, this just is not the way that God works. It's interesting that universal, uh, excuse me, atonement is universal. Everyone has a sense that I need to work it off, but God does not work that way in light of the cross. But the religious Christian has failed to see how God works through the cross and so insists upon being able to work his or her way out of debt and out of despair. And so interestingly enough, to the religious person, to the religious Christian, the total pardon, the radical forgiveness, the complete release of debt through the cross is actually offensive because it says that our good works have no value before God in the sense of improving our standing before him. And ultimately it shows that they have no value in satisfying our guilty conscience in the face of the burden of sin. So it's offensive to the religious person. What do you mean my goodness doesn't count for anything? What do you mean that my goodness doesn't make God more happy with me than it does this horrible sinner? It's an offense. So verse 11, Paul says, Dear brothers and sisters, if I were still preaching that you must be circumcised, as some say I do, why am I still being persecuted? If I were no longer preaching salvation through the cross of Christ, no one would be offended. You see, no one is offended because of the felt need to atone for one's failures being universal. Everyone can accept the message that says, listen, you've done bad, God's pretty upset, but, but you can actually do better and that'll make God happy. Nobody's offended by that message because it's, it's wholly intuitive. It's exactly how we think. It's exactly how we deal with one another. We're so ungodlike in our dealings with one another. You've upset me. You've let me down. I'm going to be bummed about it till you do better. That's how I deal with people. Almost exclusively. They've done poorly to me, before me. I need them to do better before I'm going to be kind to them again. Everyone accepts that message. Of try harder. Be good. Do better. 
And the religious performance-oriented person actually insists upon it and is offended when his or her efforts are regarded as a fall from grace, which is what Paul is saying it is. Because those who insist upon performance always demand to be recognized. This is why in our minds we set up these, these, these little categories of good Christian, bad Christian. I'm better, you're not as good. Failing to locate all of our security and acceptance and joy in Christ and the gospel, we are forced to find it in comparing ourselves to others and will only feel good about ourselves if we could identify others as being worse than us. So the religious person insists upon their performance being recognized. And yet we see, in light of what has been done for us in the cross, that that attitude, though it is at its core a search for freedom, enslaves over and over again. And it is the cruelest sort of condition, the slavery to having to perform. And that's the condition that the false teachers in this church were creating. And so look how, Paul, look, look how upset Paul is, verse 12. He says, I just wish that those troublemakers who want to mutilate you by circumcision would mutilate themselves. Wow. Paul, is that a nice thing to say? That's not at all a nice thing to say. It can be translated, I wish those that wanted you to be circumcised would just castrate themselves. That's the Bible. This ought ought to only do one thing for us. This ought to show us how radically dangerous, destructive, perverted, and enslaving it is to insist upon relating to God, valuing ourselves and others according to how well or poorly we keep the rules. Paul says, these guys trying to put that on someone, I wish they would cut themselves off. Because what they were doing was mutilating the truth. They were rendering the cross worthless, making Christ of no benefit, causing people to fall from grace and be cut off from Christ. So here's, here's me. I've done things that caused me to have this weight of guilt way in the past and very recently. And the guilt of these things is a burden and a heavy weight. And I want to do two things. I want to relieve my conscience of it. I don't don't want to feel that weight anymore. And I want to have favor with God. Because what adds to the burden on my conscience is the fear that I'll be judged. And so in trying to accomplish these two things, I go to the law to learn what is good. And I commit myself to doing that, what is good. Believing that I'll feel better about myself and God will feel better about me. But I discover once again that in trying to do good and obey the law, the law only and always shows me to be bad. So I end up once again feeling worse about myself and imagining God feels worse about me too. And I'm more burdened by guilt and I, because I have once again failed to do what is right and I have become a slave. And I'm trapped. So where do I go? 
What can I do? The only place we could go is to Christ in faith of what he has done on the cross. There is no other recourse. There is no other option, no other way to deal with the conscience and the standing before God than to go to Christ in faith. That is it. And here's why this is so difficult. Because in that, there's nothing for us to do. And we want to do something. Even in working on this sermon this week, as I was nearing the end of the flow of logic here, I was thinking and I was discussing with Pastor Al the message. And we said, well, okay, so, so what do they need to do then? And I, I know that generally in my sermons, I'm, I'm not that good with application. Pastor G always tells me that. That was a great theological sermon, but your application stinks. You didn't tell them what to do. And so I'm thinking, okay, what, what, what do they do? Okay, I want to be a good pastor. I'll make them do many things. If they want to get rid of guilt and feel okay before God, here's what they have to do. And I, I, there again, in, in writing the sermon, I was falling into the same trap. Because your human heart always says, there's got to be something I can do to make it better. What, what, Pastor Britt, don't, don't leave me hanging here. Tell me what to do. There is only one thing to do. To put all your faith, all your hope, all your trust in what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. That is the only thing that we can do. And if you can't do that, there's nothing else I can tell you to do. There are no steps. There are no other way. There's no other recourse. There's only by completely believing, trusting, clinging to, daily resting upon what Christ has done, that my conscience is satisfied because I know that the debt for my wickedness has been paid and that God is pleased because I know that his wrath has been satisfied. That is why Jesus stood before the religious people and said, come to me. All of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I'm going to give you rest. That's why he stood before very religious people and said, take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's why he stood before very religious people and said, my yoke is easy, and the burden I give to you is light. The burden of guilt is only lifted by Jesus. And the good news that has been brought to us is that for those who put all of their faith in Jesus Christ, and do nothing else. There is no guilt in life. There is no guilt in life. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For those who put all their faith in Christ, there is no guilt in life. And therefore... There is no fear in death. Those are two things that are common to all of humanity. 
guilt, and the fear of death because of judgment. You put your faith in Christ, there is no guilt in life. Jesus took our place upon the cross, and there is no fear of death. Verse 5, But we who live by the Spirit eagerly wait to receive by faith the righteousness God has promised. For when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, there's no benefit in being circumcised or being uncircumcised. What is important is faith expressing itself in love. Now, we'll deal with that phrase next week, faith expressing itself in love. But hear this. We who live by the Spirit, as opposed to the works of the flesh, so we who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, been born again by the Spirit of God, have the Spirit of God in us, which causes us to cry out, Abba, Father, to Him. We who live by the Spirit eagerly await by faith the righteousness God has promised to us. You see, what, what the Christian does is not work for righteousness. We wait for righteousness. And what this is referring to is judgment day. All of humanity, no matter what they say, fears the judgment day. But for those who put their faith in Christ, there is no fear in death. In fact, it says we eagerly await the judgment day. Think about that. We actually look forward to judgment. Because when your name is called, Christ will step forward. And Christ will hold forth his arms and say, Father, look at the wounds. And there will be nothing the Father could say to you except for innocent, righteous, holy, beloved, accepted. And that will be declared over you in front of all of the angels, in front of all of humanity, and for all of history. You will be declared righteous, innocent, and worthy of being treated excellent only, only because you have put your faith in Christ. Jude 24 says on that day that we will stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. I lied to you in this sermon. When I said that I feel a tremendous weight of guilt, I don't. I lied to you. I don't. I have done horrific things a long time ago and very recently. But I don't. Because Christ is my substitute. And so I can't. Neither did Paul. When he wrote this, it was not all that many years ago that he had with his own hands slain men and women who loved Christ. But he felt no guilt because Christ was slain in his place. I feel no guilt. Do you? Put your faith in Christ. And there'll be no guilt in life and no fear in death. 
Lord, is too good. The truth of what you've done for us is too good. We can only marvel at it. We can only be in awe of it. We can never be in awe of it enough. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd help us. You'd help us to lay hold of the truth of the cross. Lord, anyone here who's never put their faith in Christ and what he's done for us, we ask that they do that today, right now. And that that burden of guilt would be removed. Lord, for those who are struggling with it, Christians, and yet struggling with guilt, not laying hold of the fullness of the truth of the gospel, we ask that freedom would come to their lives today. Thank you that as we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness and that we eagerly look forward to being declared righteous once and for all before of all of humanity and all of history on that day. And Lord, we ask finally that you just cause us to be more happy and joyful about these things, that our lives would exude these truths and that they would affect our relationships, that we would be more like you in dealing with one another and that we'd be more quick to tell the world of this glorious news. Today's a great day to celebrate this truth by coming and taking communion, worshiping before so wonderful a God. And the prayer team is here. If you have need of anything at all, if you're still struggling,